imagine that you move out of state. Actually, in January, I think probably a lot of you do imagine that. <laughs> uh, and, and there, in your new community, you would have to find a new church. That process is always fraught. Um, but anyway, finally, you visit one church where the building is attractive, the praise songs are singable, uh, there's beautiful instrumental music, um, people seem to be giving generously uh, to the offering, and not only is there energy and excitement on the big days of the faith, but there are also solemn assemblies. You go, man, this church knows how to worship. This is amazing, amazing. Well, maybe they know how to worship, and maybe they don't. That's not enough to tell. Just because it looks like worship to God does not mean God finds it pleasing. In fact, it could be a worship service God hates. Now, hate is a really strong word. I, I don't use it lightly, and the Bible rarely uses it of God. Very seldom does it say God hates something, but that is the word God uses when he speaks through the prophet Amos to the worshipers of his day. If you look there in Amos chapter 5 and verse 21, God says, I hate. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I won't listen to the music of your harps. It's almost like God's going, ah, stop that noise. Now let's recap. God is looking at this worship service, which obviously is required a lot of planning and a lot of participation. And he says, I hate, I will not accept, I won't even notice, away with. This is very strong. This is surprising too. Because God was the one who commanded his people to worship. There's whole chapters of the Bible, chapter after chapter after chapter, about how you bring appropriate offerings and sacrifices to God. The Psalms, a whole enormous book, a repertoire of music that the people are to sing. And psalm after psalm says, come, let us make music to the Lord. Let's sing to the Lord our God and all that, the rock of our salvation. And now God says, although you're doing those things, this is not it. It's not what I'm looking for. So the painful realization that we need to take in is that it is entirely possible for people to think they're worshiping God and God's not having it. Now this bothers me. I don't ever want to uh, offer God worship that he doesn't like. And I don't ever want to be a part of a church that would be doing that. And I know, I know all of you here that I do know tonight are the same way. That's not what you're after. We put a lot into our worship, and we want God to be pleased with it. So what exactly is it that would cause God to say of worship, I hate? We all need to know. We all need to know so that we will bring him pleasing 
worship. And the prophet Amos tells us how. Exactly. And he's look, he, he, he tells us that God is looking for two things in our worship. All right, the first one you'll see in chapter 5, verse 25, when God says, let me ask you a question, Israel. Was it to me you were bringing your sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness? No, it wasn't. Now, wait, wait, wait. During those 40 years when Israel was in the wilderness, they did worship God. The people of God did worship God. They had a portable sanctuary called the tabernacle that they would take with them, set up, and they had regular worship. But what God knows is that that whole time that was happening, his people's hearts were also involved in prayer to, sacrifices to, longing for their pagan gods. And he names a couple, Sakuth, your king god, and Kaiwan, your star god, the ones you made for yourself. Sakuth is the Assyrian god that's associated with Saturn. So it's that bright dot in the sky. And Kaiwan is, is a nickname for that god. It just means star god. So they called Sakuth star god also. So God's, what's going on here? God's people look like they're worshiping God, the one true God, but they've also got something going on the side. It's like that, that husband who tells his wife, I love you so much, and he's also got something going on the side. God will not accept that, just like any spouse should not have to. And so God is pleased by our worship when we worship him alone. God alone. Now, we all know in polytheism, there are many, many gods. Gods of rocks and trees and frogs and all kinds of things. And you worship many of them. And in monotheism, of course, you worship one. But what's going on for these worshipers in Amos' day is actually what's, I believe, most popular in our own. And it's not polytheism, and it's not monotheism. It's what's called henotheism. And with henotheism, what you have is you have one main God, and that might be Yahweh. But you also have some other gods. You don't give those up. It's not God alone. It's God plus. God is pleased with our worship when we give up our henotheism and we come in with hearts to him that say, God, I want you. I want you alone. That's all, I, I, all I'm asking for is you. There's, I refuse to allow to continue these other attachments in my life that compete with you. Now, it is right here where we preachers struggle, honestly, to try to translate the old school idolatry, which was with physical objects made of gold, sculpted from gold, or carved out of stone, to the way idols work in our day. So you may hear preachers say something like, well, your car might be an idol, your job may be an idol, which I suppose anything can be. John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. They just churn them out. Okay. For what it's worth, the idols in my life are usually more subtle than that. 
Usually what goes on for me is they start with something good, something I want, and really there's no reason not to want it. For example, uh, oh, let's just say attention from others, or health, or an easier life, or whatever it may be, like that. But below my awareness, the way I'm really starting to feel is, how would I ever get by without that? I got to have that. And actually, although I've never told God this, I'm assuming that one of the big job description duties for Yahweh, the real God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is to make sure I always have that. And that never gets threatened. Well, what has a way of happening is that life comes along. And life bumps into that idol and it starts to wobble and you can tell that it still has that kind of place in my life because at that moment how do I respond I freak out I'm mad at God I don't know how I'm going to handle it I'm out of sorts and it's at that moment that I have a choice am I willing to worship God even if it means I have to let go of this thing that I've been assuming and counting on. I've been feeling about this thing. If I have that, I'll be okay. That will tell me that life is going to be all right. And if I don't have that, I don't know if I can keep worshiping God. And God is saying, I'm looking for the person who will say, yet will I praise thee. You can strip it away. I'm still worshiping you. Now, now you know why giving up our idols is so hard. It feels like something dying. It feels like a form of a death. And it turns out, I believe, that following God is kind of this lifelong process of learning to let go of the things that we thought we also had to have and find out that God is there with us and is enough. So what is that thing in your life that sounds like what I was trying to describe? We're very creative and they're very unique often to ourselves. Are you willing to worship God in such a way that you can say, As you make me aware of these kind of things, Lord, I will turn away from them. I will devote myself more fully to you. I want you. No henotheism, monotheism. So that's the first thing. God is pleased by our worship when we come with hearts like that. All right, now the second quality of God pleasing worship comes in verse 24 the most famous words Amos ever spoke. In this translation, it reads, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And whenever I read those words, I can hear in my head the rich baritone voice of Martin Luther King Jr. quoting it in an earlier translation, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. In the Middle East, they have these dry riverbeds 
that are called wadis. And much of the year, they're dry. Just looks like a gulch. But during rainy season, or if it suddenly starts to rain, they just fill up with water. And what God is saying here is, I don't want a wadi of justice that might have justice sometimes on occasion. I want a river. I want an endless stream. I want it to be dependable and just flow on with power. That's the kind of justice I'm looking for. And God is pleased when we care for those who have less. And one of the things I've been learning is when people have less, you can count on it. There's some reason why they have less. And a lot of times, it's because of injustices. It's because of systems that were stacked against them. Ones that they can't beat that way. Now, Amos speaks to people in his day there in Israel, 762 or so, where they're not doing that. The country's actually on an economic high. The army's strong, things are good. And he says to those folks, what sorrow awaits you who lounge in luxury in Jerusalem and you who feel secure in Samaria, you're famous and popular in Israel. He's describing people like we see a lot of on TV. They, they, their lives are filled with luxury and security and fame and popularity. But what they don't have is concern for the poor. They don't realize, oh, I'm part of the system that rewards me at the expense of others. And Amos says, you care nothing, this is verse 6, for the ruin of your nation, which means you don't care about the poor who are the main population of your nation, so many who build this nation with their labor, and you don't care that if you continue to oppress them and ignore them and care less about them, the nation will be called to account. Now, their money, which is a good thing, by the way. Money it can be a tool of great blessing and power. But what's it being spent on? Elegant furniture, carved and inlaid with ivory. Where do they get the ivory? Not right in Israel. That's, you know, that's all imported goods. Vintage wine. He says, you don't drink it by the glass. You drink it by the bowlful. That's the way you do parties. There's a carafe at every place. And meanwhile, the poor of the nation are being neglected. So God is pleased with worship when we can truly say we're becoming aware of these things and we're working on them. Then he's pleased with our worship. Uh, the pastor of a United Methodist Church out in Ohio was, Ohio was telling me about something his, that some families in his church were doing. Various parents in his church, he had a number of families, and they were saying to each other, oh my gosh, how are we ever, ever, ever going to afford college for our kid or kids? It seems impossible. Whether they're 13 months or 13 years, you just go, I don't know how we're going to do this. Well, and so here's where Amos comes in and the justice starts to roll down. The church was also working with underserved youth in the community there. And they realized one of the things we need to, to help some of these uh, students escape the cycle of poverty is to be able to tell them, if you work hard, if you stay with your studies, 
will take care of making sure you have money for your tech school or trade school or two-year college or four-year college even, okay? And so what these families did is they, would cre they created like a college savings club. And it was a way to hold each other accountable to save for their own kids' college. But here's the way it worked. Let's say this month, you, you, your goal was to save $50 this month for your child to be able to go to school years down the road. So you put $50 in your own fund of your choice, but everybody's kind of asking you, are you staying up with yours? But then you give 10% of whatever you put in your kid's account into a church fund that goes to the education of kids you may never meet, but they may be the first one in their family to go to school. Now, I, I love the heart behind that. Amos would like it. God is pleased from people, when people worship him who use what we have to care for others. And here, I really do have to affirm you, Savior. Truly, as I thought about this this week, I, I, my mind cascaded with things you have done and are doing. I, I just in the past few years, you have given generously to the Employment Opportunity Center at Outreach uh, for folks who are hard to employ, trying to help break that cycle for them. Shelters for the homeless with pads, housing and life skills for teen moms at Jubilee Village, trauma counseling for immigrants and refugees through World Relief Chicago, and housing for them as well. Um, food pantries for those struggling to buy sh groceries. Mostly this was uh, during COVID in West Chicago with a lot of families where the workers were primarily in the service industry, which just got wiped out, as you remember, during COVID. Um, we have spent money to send oxygen concentrators for COVID victims to Nepal, relief for victims of wildfires in California, hurricanes in Houston, We've helped run clean water to a family's home on the Navajo Nation. We have uh, helped launch a fund for church planters of color within C4SO, and I could go on and on. But the point is, I get blessed as I think about that list. And God sees that heart too, and he is blessed. And when you come to worship and you're saying, I'm not just looking for what I can get. This is costing me something, but it's costing me something for people God loves and that God is watching out for and that God has the back of. God is pleased when we bring him our whole hearts in worship and to him alone and also when we care for those who have less. It's like Amos has spent his whole book on the two eyes, idolatry and injustice idolatry and injustice. They always go together, and Amos calls them both out. And the answer is the one that Jesus gives is the two L's. The answer the two I's with the two L's. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That destroys idolatry. And love your neighbor as yourself. You don't just give them a tip. You give them some sacrifice. That wipes out this sense of injustice one time I was talking with Bishop Todd, and he mentioned Elizabeth O'Connor's book, Journey Inward, Journey Outward. And I knew of the book because it has given us here at Savior our language of outward journey, meaning loving others, and the inward journey of loving God. Okay? 
And that phrase was Elizabeth O'Connor's way of describing the life that was going on at her church in Washington, D.C. called Church of the Savior. And, and I told Todd, I said, I, I don't know if you know this, but our church, Church of the Savior, was named partly in honor of them because what they were doing was they were bringing together evangelical belief, like belief in the real God, with social concern for those who are, are battered and beaten down by life. And I said, they did it back when that was extremely unpopular. And Bishop Todd says, I'm not sure it's popular today. <laughs> well, it may not be popular, but you know what? God likes it. And God says, I know we know, we can say with certainty from the word of God spoken through Amos what God says to a people who come to him with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and with this compassionate care for others. He'll say, I love your religious festivals. I love your solemn assemblies. I can't wait to go to those. I will accept your offerings. I will hear your prayers and I delight in your songs of praise. Amen. Amen.